but it's great. You get it's an opportunity to just go explore and experiment, right? Yeah. And so to me, that's the advice: is experiment like crazy. Don't worry as much about this traditional grades and that kind of stuff. I, I was way too worried about that stuff. Like obviously. That was useful for me to get to good graduate school. There's a gatekeeper but function to grades. There's a gatekeeper sure. function, so I don't want to say don't worry about grades, but there's ways around grades. Um, yes. If uh, you know, and so the real value, what it really should you should be doing is experimenting a lot and learning a lot. Hello and welcome to a new angle. I'm your host Justin Angle, associate professor of marketing here at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to talk with innovative thinkers both savvy vets and up-and-coming stars in the Montana business ecosystem. My goal with these conversations is to dig deep into how these people think, to understand how they view the world and conceptualize the opportunities it presents. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the first episode of A New Angle. I'm your host, Justin Angle. We're launching this new bi-weekly podcast out of the College of Business at the University of Montana, and I'm tremendously grateful to the many people here at the college who have helped get this thing off the ground. My goal with this podcast is to speak with awesome people doing cool things in and around Missoula, Montana. I'm interested in how people create, how they see opportunity, and how they then go out and seize it. The stories we'll tell here at A New Angle are ones that I hope resonate with you at whatever stage you are in your career. It's fun to learn, and exploring the journeys of some of the many incredible creators in our community is inspiring. So let's get to our first guest, Bryce Ward. Bryce is one of the smartest people I know. He is Associate Director of the Bureau of Business and Economic Research here at University of Montana. He's an economist with a PhD from Harvard University, and he knows a lot about a lot of things. I think my first conversation with Bryce lasted almost three hours. And we could have kept going and going and going. And, and sometimes we do. Bryce recently gave the keynote address for the Bureau's 2018 Economic Outlook Seminar here in Missoula. He spoke about the future of higher education, something near and dear to my heart, and something on the minds of many in our community. Our conversation today is an extension of that talk. He only had 15 minutes in that keynote, and today we're able to explore the future of higher education more deeply. Though certainly not completely, I didn't want to launch this podcast with a three-hour episode. Bryce's command of the research and his ability to synthesize and clearly communicate it are amazing. I learned a lot, and I hope that you will too. And now, I give you Bryce Ward. So I'm here with Bryce Ward today. Bryce, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. So Bryce, you are the Associate Director of the Bureau of Business and Economic Research at the University of Montana. What is that? That's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be honest, I have three other titles. So it's going to get I know. Really I, tried to, I tried to keep uh, it tight. It's kind of absurd. I think this is a university thing. So the Bureau does research on mostly on Montana's economy, although like anybody who hangs out at a university, we tend to get pulled into other things as mm -hmm. well. So, you know, we're kind of sort of the experts on Montana's economy. And, and you're an expert on many things. Anybody who's spent any time with Bryce knows that he can <laughs> speak very eloquently on a wide variety of topics. But technically, your PhD is in healthcare economics. 
Uh, well, that's no, that's my title here. Uh, as a, I'm an applied microeconomist. Okay. Uh, so as a graduate student, I did urban economics, labor economics, and public finance, which includes health economics. Okay. Uh, so those were my main areas that I spent my time in graduate school. The job here was called Director of Healthcare Research, so uh, that's one of my other titles. And I'd done enough healthcare research in my life uh, before I came here that I could pretend to be a healthcare economist enough to get the job here. Okay. Uh, but since I've been here, I do healthcare stuff, but I also do a lot of stuff just on broadly on social policy and regional economics. Mm-hmm. So we're catching you in the midst of the Economic Outlook Tour. It's one of the annual uh, events, so to speak, of the Bureau. So you're traveling around the state, uh, speaking about the future of higher education. So we're going to dig into that. Um, you just spoke in Missoula. And, man, what a dense talk. So much great information there. The thing that caught my eye, probably out of mostly self-interest, is what is the future of higher education? And from the point of view of a, of a professor, what on earth does my job look like 20 years from now, 10 years from now, 10 minutes from now? It seems <laughs> things are changing so quickly. So um, this premise of automation, of the benefits of higher education changing, all of these different factors, I mean, we've talked about them at various times. Let's dig into this notion of will the benefits of higher education continue? And maybe actually before we do that, what are the benefits of higher education? Essentially, the fundamental purpose of higher education within a local economy is it builds capacity, mm-hmm. right? So, and it builds capacity in two ways. So part of it's through the research side of higher education. That's where we generate new ideas. And sometimes those new ideas then spin out into companies or they kind of spill over into local companies and help them succeed and grow and all that kind of stuff. Knowledge creation. Knowledge creation. Um, I think we're going to set that aside for probably a lot of this, but I don't want to dismiss it because it's important. But the other part, of course, is the is the teaching. You know, and obviously we educate students in institutions of higher education and those students then go on to do pretty well, right? We know that if you have a college degree, you earn a lot more. We know that you're, on average, you live six years longer. Your health is better. Your kids' health is better. Your kids' economic outcomes are better. In fact, your parents' health tends to improve. You know, I think a lot of this is because uh, kids go to college, and then they learn that things like smoking is bad, and then they go and they tell their parents, like, smoking is bad. Um, and yeah, maybe they're less of a I don't want to say burden, but they take less. Yeah, and there, and, you know, there's less. Yeah, there's other things. You know, there's maybe other stuff. But you know, yeah. there's this whole suite of benefits that accrue to the individual. But there's also spillover benefits, sure. right? And you know, we know that uh, in places where you have a higher density of people with college degrees, people without college degrees tend to earn more. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, there's all these benefits that come from you know what we do at high institutions of higher ed in terms of building the capacity of the economy. And, you know, that was really telling in one of your slides that showed the sort of density of tech-oriented businesses that kind of cluster around university towns and such. Yeah, so we know that, so again, that's the part of the, bar, that's both, right? It, we, the effects are in terms of, A, part of this is the research side of universities. Mm-hmm. You know, professors have ideas, um, and those then create companies or then the companies benefit from having access to faculty who serve as advisors or whatever it is. But they also, the universities create the workforce, yeah. right? When they, and the companies tend to want to locate, co-locate with the places because college towns are nice places to live. And a lot of people, when they come to a college town, they don't really want to leave. 
Um, and so firms find it advantageous to kind of co-locate because it's, a, it's an, an easy pipeline into a, a highly skilled workforce. And so you kind of get this clustering of economic activity around university towns that is in part because of these benefits that are being created by the university. And, they, you know, they do spread out. You know, obviously people, ideas can go a long ways and, and students can go along, you know, can leave the university towns and go wherever. But there are some advantages that tend to accrue, you know, really, relatively closely that, uh, you know, in university or college towns. Okay. So the benefits of higher ed stipulated, but there's some reason to believe that those benefits might not persist. We're in an interesting moment where if you look at survey evidence, Wall Street Journal and NBC News did a survey recently, which they asked the question four years ago. And the share of people, particularly the share of young people mm-hmm. who said that a college degree is worth it, had fallen by a non-trivial amount. Yes. Um, and so there's this notion that somehow either the cost has gotten too high or, well, it's all relative. Sure. The benefits haven't kept up with the cost. Right. Um, and so somehow college isn't worth it. Right. And then there's another political angle to it, mm-hmm. which is that somehow college is bad. Uh, you know, and the Pew asked this question, you know, are four-year colleges good for the economy? I can't remember what the exact wording is. But and particularly amongst Republicans, uh, there since 2015, you've seen this massive decline in the share of Republicans and Democrats is unchanged. And it was unchanged in both parties for decades. Yeah, uh, so let's let's put a pin there because I'd like to come back to that one. But your first statement about erosion in the belief that higher education will be beneficial. So there, that's that's been a trend the last five or so years. But then outside of that, your evidence or the evidence you've cited about the the benefits has been consistent up to the most recent data point. Is that well, right? in fact, it's grown. Yeah, okay. You know the the returns to education. So if you look at just just set aside all the health benefits that we talked about, let's just focus on the earnings gap. Mm-hmm. Right? You know how much you earn in expectation over the course of your life will bring all of your earnings over your life back in time. So we'll discount them back and we'll compare them to the cost of going to college. Okay. Right. So when you do that, and lots of studies have tried to do this, uh, you find enormous financial returns to higher education. And those returns have grown substantially over the past 50 years. Okay. Much faster even than tuition costs. So, the you know, so from a financial perspective, it does still, on average, it's still worth it. The question really is at the margin, for whom is it worth it? Right. Right. That's where it gets interesting. But on average, for the average college student compared to the average, you know, that person, had they not gone to college, we think that they would earn a lot less, somewhere between, you know, for men, like half a million to a million dollars over the course of your life. Wow. Um, you know, and again, that's even after we've taken out the the cost of going to college. Yeah, so that accounts for any debt they accrue as a student. The debts, all that you know, stuff. all that kind okay. of stuff is usually being accounted for in these calculations. Um, for women, because their labor force attachment tends to be a little bit weaker, particularly as they get into child rearing, okay. um, the returns are slightly less. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they're still large, right? And, you know, and somewhat encouragingly, kind of setting aside the survey evidence, which, again, I think comes back to the political piece, if you just look at the share of people who graduate from from high school who enroll in college the next fall, it hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. It's basically been flat okay. for 15 years. Okay. Um, so we see some evidence in surveys that people are like opposed to college, 
But it's not clear that the people who are saying the college isn't worth it, that might have said it before, we're even going to go or, you know, we're at that margin because if we look at enrollment, and again, some of this is very recent, and so we won't know because we're always sure. backward looking a year or two. But, you know, at least as of 2015, you know, the share of kids who enrolled, you know, sort of recent high school graduates who enrolled in either a two or four year college the following fall was the same as it, basically the same as it was in 2000. Okay. So that hasn't really changed. So again, there's this discussion and there's some concern that, you know, somehow college maybe won't be, you know, and again, when we talk about these returns, it's all backward looking, right? So there's two other, there's the future is where it gets interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, is the economy going to change in ways that make it so that this growing return to college will start to shrink? Okay. Right? Or two... Will some alternative technology or whatever it is allow a person to get the benefits that they could have gotten from going to college without actually having to go? So it would seem in many ways that point two is, is already here. Like the technology exists. We have MOOCs. We have online education. We have entirely online colleges. So this notion of online delivery, whether it's through an official university or something in between that and a YouTube channel, already exist, yet the point you just made a second ago is you know, the same people are enrolling in college at the same rate. So it hasn't happened yet. Will it happen in the future? I'm highly skeptical. Okay. So there's a long history of people thinking that technology will suddenly disrupt education in some massive way, right? So I recently came across a quote from Thomas Edison. So 1913. Yeah. Thomas Edison basically said something to the effect of books in the classroom will be obsolete within 10 years. Okay. Right? <laughs> he thought that silent movies were going to replace the book. Right? And then you move forward to computers. And, of course, computers are going to change everything. And, yep. you know, in between, a, you know, he was talking about silent movies. So, presumably, when talkies came in, like, man, like, you know, and you, you and I, I'm sure we both watched lots of educational Absolutely. movies yeah. and films. Right? So, it's not that these technologies aren't incorporated. Right? The question is, is can they actually substitute for what we, act, what we do in college? Right? And that's a hard question because, in some sense, we know that college works. Mm-hmm. Right. We know that if you go to college, to the best of our knowledge, it's a causal effect. You earn more. The health effects are harder to prove causally, sure. but there's some evidence that, 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 you know, from the, you know, quasi random things that we do where we find things, you know, things, you look at things like the Vietnam War and okay. people who ended up going to college to avoid the draft. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, so you could look at people's draft numbers and basically say you had a stronger incentive to go to college than this person because of where you were in the draft number. We can compare you and see, you know, if college affected you. That's okay. one of the ways that we learn that causally people who go to college will earn more. Or the other way we do it is we look at people right at cutoffs, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, so like a public institution, you go to the lowest four-year public institution in your state, and usually it's a formula okay. for how you get in, okay, right? And you can say, oh, you made it across the line and you didn't, and we're going to compare you. And that's how we kind of learn about the causal effects. And we kind of have this belief that these earning effects that we talked about aren't just because the better students went to college, yeah. right? It's something about what happens to you in college. But we don't know what that is, right? And for us to kind of posit that somehow technology is going to substitute for what we do in college, we kind of have to have a good sense of what are we actually doing in college? Yeah. Because it has to somehow replace where the juice is, what's actually driving the benefits. And the challenge is, if you really think about it, college isn't a pill. 
mm-hmm. right? It's not like every student comes and we go, here's your college pill. Right. And we're, you're going to take the college pill and everybody gets the same effect, mm-hmm. right? We have a whole range of different types of students ranging from the I'm a highly motivated, super academic, whatever it is, to wandering guys who are like, I don't know. I'm here to try and figure out what to do with my life. Yep. You've got older students who are coming back to change a career, but then they kind of really know what they want to do. You've got people who are you know, just trying to advance their careers. So there's this whole range of people, and particularly if we're including, if we're dividing higher ed to include two-year colleges or sure. certificate programs, there's a whole range of students, yep. right? There's a whole range of institutions ranging from, again, certificate program to a two-year community college to a, a regular four-year public institution to an Ivy League. And then, you know, of course, you start mixing that whole range of students with the whole range of colleges and you say, well, what did I get out of college? I'm an economist because I went to the University of Oregon. And yes, I was an economics major, but I did not go to college to become a PhD economist. I'm from a small town. I didn't know what a PhD economist was. It wasn't, this is a little sort of personal aside, but your point of contact with faculty that motivated you to pursue that consulting path, a PhD path, was that not in a theater class or something? I was a drama class, yeah. So, okay. uh, you know, so yeah, I'll give you my little story, right? So I'm from a small town. And if you talk to people in high school who are going to college, everybody was going to be one of three things. They were going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a teacher. Sure. Right? Because... Those are the only college-educated people that we knew. Yeah, that's what you know. Right? And so, you know, I had some notion that maybe I was going to be different. I was going to be an architect. Okay. Of course, but I never enrolled in the architecture school. Um, So clearly, I wasn't that motivated to do that. But I was an aimless junior. I had no idea what I was going to do afterwards. Uh, Junior at University of Oregon. University of Oregon. I was a history major who had recently added an economics major, and I took. I was in the honors college, and you know, I took this class on modern drama, which is basically, you know, it's basically a literature class where we read Sartre and Bertolt Brecht yeah. and Tennessee Williams and Tom Stoppard and you know these kinds of plays, right? But you know, at the end of it, he made everybody come pick up their final papers and get their grades from them. Right? Okay, and, yeah, you had to go meet him in person. And, you know, it comes in and says, oh, hey, sit down and let's have a conversation. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And at this point, I'm like, I don't know. I'm an economist. Uh, you know, like, I've heard of this thing called consulting. I've been at college three years. And so this there's this new potential career path that I know nothing about. And it's like, well, there's a professor who has a consulting firm in the economics department. You should actually talk to him. At this point, I had no idea that this professor even existed. Because sure. most of the time, he was consulting, right? He only taught one to two classes a year. Okay. Um and so I go upstairs because he was on one floor and the economics department's to the next floor up. So I wander upstairs and I see, of course, that he's not there um, and won't be there again until spring, which point I was going to be in Germany, but uh, I was doing study abroad. But I, while I was in Germany, I saw that he was teaching a class the next quarter. Okay. And so I took his class and, you know, I did well enough that he hired me. Um, mm-hmm. And it was when I was working there that somebody first asked. So we thought about getting a PhD in economics. Yeah. And it was that point I looked at his life. I'm looking at him going, well, he teaches these school classes at the university. He's doing this important, interesting work in this consulting firm. And I was like, I could be that guy. Yeah, that seems like a good job. That seems like a good job, right? Doing things that I find interesting, making a decent amount of money. And so that was it. Like that was where it kind of gelled. And ultimately, I kind of figured out the matching, right? But that's, again, that's one path, right? So I'm somebody who went to college from a small town, relatively unaware of the diverse set of occupations and, and locations and different types of things. So for me, 
yeah, I got some benefits from the standard stuff in terms of cognitive, technical, you know, writing skills and math skills and all that kind of stuff that you get from classes. But for me, the biggest thing that I got out of college was somebody, you know, helping me see the, that there was a different possibility than I'd ever considered and showing me that it was possible for me to do it. Right. So here's the key. It will bring this back from personal narrative to specific benefits to this college pill that doesn't really exist, but we sort of to use that terminology. Part of that pill is or are social interactions that I think technological platforms would be very... It would be very difficult to recreate such interactions on on technical platforms, at least in their current form. So, speak to that this this notion of social interaction and how that. So yeah, so to me, the the key thing that why I I, I don't believe that technology will substitute for traditional education at any level uh, is that the interaction seems to matter. Yeah. Right. And it matters for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, we actually have an accumulating amount of evidence from these kind of new technologies mm-hmm. that suggest that they don't work as well. OK. Right. So uh, the best study is a recent study was published in the American Economic Review last fall. Um, they went to one of these giant national for profit colleges. OK. Right. That has both online and in person. Uh-huh. And the courses are identical. Right. The assignments, the exams, the grading rubric, all that kind of stuff are the same, right? But in some cases, you you know, you can choose to, if you live in the right place and they offer their class, you can go and take the class in person. Okay. Right? In a normal, scheduled is, way. Is the online version just a recording of it's, that class? It, well, the online is, is a recording, you know, I don't know if it's, it's, I don't know if it's that class versus, okay. I think actually, I think it's more like. More, a little bit more professional. Sure. Um, so basically, the, the differences are asynchronicity, right? So if I'm online, I can do whatever I want yep. versus I have to go and be there on time with, with everybody else. And student-to-student interaction and faculty-to-student interaction. Okay. Right? Those are what's different. Right? So online courses, the way you imagine, mm-hmm. you know, it's you're doing it. You, there's interaction, but it's virtual. It's different. Yeah. Right? And what they find is that... Uh, people who choose, and the way that they get the, uh, to get the sort of more causality, right, is because it's a giant national for-profit college, the online or the in-person option is available everywhere, hmm. right? So they use the fact that where I'm going to college, whether or not there's an in-person class is somewhat exogenous. It's not like automatically every right. term, right? right? Um, and then also depending on how far of a drive is it for me, if I want to take the on the the in person versus just stay in my house and do the online, those are the, that's what they use as kind of the exogeneity to get at the causality. Okay, and they find that people in the online courses. So again, you're trying to compare somebody who are pretty similar, except for the fact that well, the in person option wasn't available to me. Right, right, right. A different options. You know, and so we're going to control for the similarity, other you know, for otherwise similar students. And what they find is that within that course, uh, the students who do it online do a whole lot worse in terms of just how their performance in that exact course. Performance with regard to that content in that course. That course, you know, okay. it's a third of a standard deviation worse, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, but that's a big effect. That's a big effect. They do worse in subsequent courses. Yep. And they are 10 percentage points less likely to still be enrolled one year later. Wow. Those are strong Those effects. Those are strong effects. Yeah. And they kind of confirm some other stuff, which has typically been done in more within a university context, right? So, and a lot of times these are economists doing this, so they'll take the giant 
you know, intro to econ class. Yep. And they'll randomly put people into the online version versus the in-person mm-hmm. version, and then they'll compare them. And those kind of studies have also found that the online students do worse. They do worse in subsequent Jeez, courses. It's almost like a public health um, study where you got to shut it down you know, because of the placebo. Well, it's condition. not to say that it's, it's not to say this. There's still value, particularly if, look right. if the only option is distance or the only option is asynchronous. Right. It's probably better than nothing. But to the extent that we're saying, oh no, everybody's going to get this is just going to replace it. Yeah. Right. Well, no. In fact, the authors of that online, the first one we talked about was based on online, whereas they basically say, well, this might be why outcomes for students at these for-profit colleges in employment, they tend to do worse, right? If you just do like, they do audit studies where basically we give you a resume, we're going to make the resume look the same, but I'm going to change the name of the school that you went to. Mm -hmm. And if if you put one of these for-profit colleges in, I think you're 25% less likely to get a callback. Interesting. Right? And it may be, so the authors are saying, well, this may be what people have figured out. The employers have learned this, right? That, you know, the the skill acquisition from a largely online education isn't a substitute for the in-person thing. Now, as an urban economist, I am predisposed to believe that face-to-face social interactions are the key thing. Okay. Right? Because when you ask, or the fundamental question of urban economics is, why do cities exist? Right. Right. So why do people find it advantageous to cluster together, particularly today? Right. You know, and so part of the reason why I'm also a, a, a believer that face-to-face education will not just exist in the future, but will probably be even more important in the future is because when the internet came out in the first place in the nineties, mm-hmm. right. The big question to urban economics is, well, are cities dead? Right. In fact, my advisor wrote a paper, my graduate advisor wrote a paper in the late 90s called Our Cities Dying. Mm-hmm. It was predicated on these, all these people are like, well, why do we need them anymore? Why, we don't need to live in a city anymore. I can just sit at home on email and we can just, yeah. gonna, if, but of course, if you sitting here in 2018, uh, nobody's talking about the death of cities. They're talking yeah. about the death of rural areas, mm-hmm. right? Cities seem to have thrived and why well it, we think it has a lot to do with i mean there's some consumption components which are also social yeah. but there's also just the fact that face-to-face interaction is an amazing way for people to acquire skills right we know that people who live in cities larger cities are more productive than people who don't and we believe that that effect is causal right and you know it's you just learn more you're exposed to more right. you find more right. opportunity to interact and that's basically a college campus a university campus is a microcosm of a city. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a bunch of people and we're actually going to select them to be all the same age, right? Yeah. Not necessarily similar, but you know, roughly in the same point in life. And we're going to try and we're just basically going to shove them together. And then we're going to basically make them do a whole bunch of different tasks that allow them to explore different things and, and they're going to share that information with each other. Um, and, you know, and different colleges excel in different ways in this way. But, you know, so the quote that kind of gets thrown around in urban economics, and I'm going to butcher it, but, you know, Alfred Marshall was a very famous economist in the late 19th century. And, you know, it talks about something about it to the effect of, you know, it's just as just if it, as if it were in the air, mm-hmm. right? You know, it being the kind of the stuff that allows us to innovate and create. And, you know, that's kind of what cities do. It's just kind of in the it's air. It's culture. Yeah, right? And, you know, Having experienced both a large public institution and a very highly selective, uh, you know, private institution, mm-hmm. I went to graduate school at Harvard. Um, it's one of the biggest differences. It's just how much more is in the basic area yeah, yeah, at absolutely. a place like Harvard. Um, 
I mean, I actually spent a year as a house tutor, and you could just go to the dining hall, and you could just see the information about how to be successful mm-hmm. spreading from person to person to person to person. Right, right. right? It's like, well, what are you doing this summer? It was not a question that anybody asked me when I was an undergrad. No. You know, I went home and worked some menial summer well, job. Or the what are you doing this summer has a much different connotation That's right. when it's asked. Like, right? what are you doing for fun? What river are you got? That's right. That's right. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go home and, like, yeah. you know... Like raft the river and have a job like that pays me money that will allow me to pay for college next term. Absolutely, but which is fine. I mean, that's not to diminish that, but it's it's very different than well, you're going to get this internship and this internship is going to lead to this thing, and you know, yes. or if you do this, these are the these are all the different routes that you can take to get to this particular outcome. And, you know, and, and even, but, you know, even that, you know, like I said, the University of Oregon allowed me to get where I needed to be, yeah. right, because of social interactions, right? Um, and so, you know, ultimately, it, it seems like there's something magical about the face-to-face between faculty and student, between students and students. And, you know, we have to figure out what that magic is so that we can probably right. create it more intentionally. So. So that kind of covers the social piece, which I think is pretty clear. And a lot of us, at least uh, I would assume a lot of listeners can kind of identify with that because they've experienced it or are experiencing it to some degree. The piece that I I don't want to leave behind as well is this automation idea. So the the demands of the economy or what jobs look like is changing. And so that's another variable in this question of, in the answer to the question of, will these benefits to higher education persist? So yeah, um, that one's harder. Yeah, um, because while there's lots of worrying about what machines could do, yes, um, we don't know what machines will actually do, right? And yeah. there's a lot of context there, right? Because one thing to create a machine that can do something is another thing for it to be adopted in the economy. Right? Yes. And in fact, we know that the conditions of the economy affect whether or not it gets adopted. Right? Okay. So uh, it's not an accident that the Industrial Revolution happened stronger in England and the United States versus the continental Europe. What was different about them? Well, labor was scarce. Right. When labor is scarce and expensive, uh, the returns to automation. The return to automation are bigger, right? And so um Right now, we actually don't have a problem with labor scarcity, and that's part of why we have these things like secular stagnation, you know, all these terms about productivity slowdowns, right? And, you know, some of the concern is that, well, workers are so cheap that even while there is maybe technology that we could use to replace them or to uh, increase productivity, we don't because it's too expensive the technology why is too expensive. To why for the switching costs? Why bother to go to the, you know, and you have to, if you're the early adopter, you got to figure it out, yep. and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so the conditions matter. So it's not, there's, there's, there's not just, well, what can the technology do? It's, okay, well, once we have the technology, then how does it interact with the economy? Um, and then, of course, then there's this also, there tends to be this period um, where industries that undergo these kind of productivity shocks Actually, frequently, there's huge increases in demand for workers in those industries, at least initially, because as the price gets cheaper and cheaper from the technology and the growth in productivity, there's a demand effect. And so you actually end up hiring lots of workers, and eventually this seems to run out, and you end up, that's when you end up in the 
nobody works in agriculture anymore. Sure, yeah. Can we work you through know. an example there? Cause sure, yeah. So let's talk about agriculture, right? Yeah. So, we'll, you know, we have, um, you know, late 19th century, we started introducing technology into the farms. And in fact, you actually saw an increase in agricultural workers, or similarly, you saw an increase in manufacturing workers. Okay. And eventually, that kind of goes on for a while. Until I, you know, and I'm going to butcher the the paper from which this I'm stealing, but like, you know, kind of runs out, right, in terms of how much more it can lower the price or whatever it is, yes. at which point then the technology just replaces for the workers and you see this giant decline. Okay. Right? So, you know, if you just think about it, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, we just, we saw an enormous number uh, increase in manufacturing workers, right, as we added technology, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But eventually that ran out and now we have many fewer manufacturing workers producing the same amount of or more manufactured output right um and so they kind of they tend there's these hump shapes right and so where are we on the hump shape what's actually happening in terms of you know what can be automated what do we have the incentive to automate um all these are questions that are really hard to do we know that you know obviously we can sit down with the the people who are are creating the technology or understand the technology and that's what some of the papers do they kind of sit down and they say well what can be automated Right. And, you know, what we tend to find is a lot of stuff can be automated. Right. What's hard to automate, though, are social stuff. Yes. Right. Okay. There's, you know, and well, and this may change, but there, it's it's basically things that are, dex, you know, require very, very fine dexterity. OK. Right? Machines aren't good at fingers. Mm-hmm. Right. At least not yet. Um, so there's some amount of that. Um, there's almost just human touch, something that is obviously a machine cannot replace touch of a human um but anything that's kind of persuasion uh you know social skill based all that kind of stuff maybe the machines will figure it out but they'll always be machines i remember in your church sales was one of the the industries or or professions that was maybe at risk higher risk of being automated i mean is that parts there's some some parts of sales right are are but some aren't right so to the extent that sales is you know you just got to find the lead you got to find the person well i can create an algorithm that can can identify who the lead is right but But the persuasion piece persuasion piece right so if you're basically like you know okay well how do i convince you to close the deal right that's probably still going to require a human um and obviously like creativity you know creating art you know all this kind of stuff that tends to be something that I mean, I can program it to do it, but I can't program it to do it in a way that's different than what I would already do. And it would seem that, and I might be butchering one of your takeaways from your talk, but jobs that require a college education in general are far less likely to be disrupted by, or eliminated by automation. That's at least what some of the studies say. I mean, there's some arguments that maybe not, but I think in general... College-educated workers tend to be concentrated in more stuff that tends to be harder to automate. Okay. okay. Um, so the expectation, again, going back to returns to college long-term, is so let's assume if we don't, you know, so economists tend to be technological optimists, right? Mm-hmm. The question always is, is this time different, right? Is, you know, we've added a ton of technology over the course of human history, and yet, and we still mostly have jobs, right? Like, it's not yeah. like, oh, you know, in fact, when you account for women and minorities entering the labor force, we actually have more people working uh, than we, you know, have historically. Sure, right? sure. Um, you know, there's some, we're not at the peak anymore. We're down a little bit from, you know, some of that's demographic stuff and some of that's some other stuff. But, you know, we've managed to find jobs. Um, 
And so typically, the typical economics response is, yes, technology does replace some jobs, right? So there are transition effects. And obviously, if you're trapped in that transition, that's not a fun place to be. Absolutely. But from a writ large, overall arching perspective, the default answer from, I think, most economists with respect to technology is we look backwards and we say, well, we'll figure something else out to do. Yeah. Right? Obviously, this time, the question is, is this time different? Is there nothing left for us to do? Are we getting to the point to where the machines have taken everything? Um, I, you know, obviously, I can't answer that. But, like, for the most part, at least in the foreseeable future, I think the standard advice is that the more educated you are, the better prepared you're going to be for whatever that transition is, is yeah, likely none, to still hold. Right. None of the automation threat or or... I don't want to use the word threat necessarily, but but the prospect of automation doesn't seem like in any way an incentive to not pursue more education. That's right. You know, until until it becomes so obvious that the technology is skill high skill replacing. Yeah. Um, uh, you should probably just bank on the insurance value alone. Because the other thing that happens, and, you know, a lot of time, what's happened over the course of the 20th century, a lot of it, or at least the last half of the 20th century, is there's substitution technology, but there's also complementary technology. Mm, okay. Right? And the more skilled you are, the more likely that technology is to be complementary to you. Right. Right? My computer and all the software on it, it makes my life easier. It replaces. There used to be people who had to do lots of things. Right? And it allows you to realize a different level of potential. These allows me, you know, or look, let's just go back to education technology. Yeah. Right? What we know, and this isn't so much from higher ed, but we actually have a fair amount of studies that look at secondary and primary education. Okay. Right? And we say, well, what happens when you introduce technology in these environments? Now, again, a lot of the best studies come from less developed countries because you can go there and do randomized control trials. Right, right. Right? We can drop say, in a bunch of computers. Right? Drop yeah. in some software, whatever it is. But the and you know, then we study it. And the, the body of evidence is not amazing. It does not suggest that technology works that well. Okay. Um, to the extent that it works well, it's when it's complementary to mm. teacher-student interactions. Okay. Not when it tries to replace it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the question is, is yes, we can get this technology. Right. But, you know, so another way of looking at this is, you know, so software, spreadsheets, all this kind of stuff. We added this. So we created this stuff. And the number of people who work in analyzing data exploded. Right. Right. And, you know, I think that, you know, so there's so certainly, yes, technology will replace some jobs. It will change occupations. It will certainly do stuff. But the odds are, particularly at the higher ends of the education spectrum, you know, it might replace some of what you do. And if that's all you do is the thing that the technology can replace, then you're harmed. But in if some ideal perspective of education, if you really got a good education, one that provides you with good technical skills, good cognitive skills, good social-emotional skills, uh -huh. um, you look at the technology and go, great, right? If I'm in your position, if I'm a professor and people are telling me that there's all this new technology that I can use, and you can imagine uh, a fully implemented computer assisted, you know, interactive workbook, yep. right? Yep. You can imagine that you could take all of your lectures and podcast them or video them and just have that 
recorded somewhere. And even better, we're in Missoula. Go talk to Hank Green or one of the other yeah, art, to the source. army of people who are great at making educational video. And yeah, we're going to customize your class and you're going to have it all available, right? Over the course of the semester in terms of just reminding yourself and then actually delivering lectures, what is it, 60, 70 hours yeah, of a semester? Yep. Great. Now you've got 60 to 70 hours that you can spend grading better, creating assignments mm-hmm. that get more student one-on-one you know, interaction. More one-on-one students. interaction, but not just interaction face-to-face socially, but also here's an assignment that yeah. I'm going to help you do better on. Right, right. Right. That isn't the computer-assisted, just knowledge-based, yep. right? But it's the harder thing to work on, which is how to write better mm-hmm. or how to think more creatively about how to solve a problem, right? right? Which, you know, that's, I you know, computer-assisted technology can help me understand vocabulary words or concepts. But in terms of that creativity, the problem-solving, the organizational ability, all those things are now that ideally, in my world, if I'm creating a college of the future, well, great, we've got... Some faculty will get replaced. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They will. But we're going to free up a bunch of time and maybe bring in a different set of faculty who help do some of the stuff and we're going to do it more intentionally uh, that we're we kind of do a little bit of, but maybe only for students who are motivated. You know, like, oh, yeah, I, you know, if you were to take a class from me, it's a requirement that you come talk to me one on one because I know that. That's where the magic happens. That's where the magic happens. And not, like, by joke, they say that lecture was just an advertisement for office hours. Right. No, it makes sense. But the point is, is that, you know, and again, a lot of students, I'm not their thing. I'm not going to provide them with the inspiration. I'm not going to say, look, oh, yes, I'm going to be the great, the reference who gets you here or the mentor or whatever it is. But if I don't get you to come in, you're never going to find me. Well, and even if you're not the guy, like in your case... The professor you went in to visit knew the person. He was the one who told me to go see the He was the matchmaker. Right. right? And so, uh, to me, technology could be great in transforming higher ed, just as it can be great in transforming a lot of educated jobs so that we can do them better. Yeah. Right? You know, because we have not reached the limits of human capacity in terms of, you know, oh, yeah, do we educate every person to their capacity? No. Right. We fall way short of that. Right. And until we as a society have achieved that, I the potential for higher education to do more, to extract more out of our potential is there. And, we, you know, and I, we should view technology as a complement to allowing us to do that. And, you know, allowing us to do it here in higher ed, but also in the industries that we're going to pump people into. Uh-huh. It's great. You're going to have this technology that's going to be available to you. Here's how to use it better. Here's how to get more out of it. Here's how to get more out of your social interactions. All that kind of stuff, you know, is what if I didn't have to, if you don't have to go and lecture on some definitions, mm-hmm. that's great. You just have to view it as we've always viewed technology is 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 is, 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 is it will save labor. Yes. And the question is, is well, not that you're going to have nothing to do. Right. There's lots right? of things. I There's lots of things you can do. And my guess is that the things that you want to do already you view a lot of the stuff that technology can currently replace as the stuff that, yeah, I, I don't really want to do that. Exactly. So as 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 we've been as we've been talking this last little bit, you know, two two questions have been emerging in my mind. The first you sort of just answered, and that was, you know, how should universities strategize in the face of these forces that we've been talking about? I've kind of just answered that over the last five minutes. The second question is, if you were a student facing this landscape. Uh, whether it's a student aiming at a highly selective school or a non-selective school or whatever, 
But how would you approach your personal investment in higher education? It's a very interesting question. Um, the way that I did it when I did it 20 years ago. Um, so my advice to a student coming in, and you know, is look, you can go to the highly selective things, um, but depending on, you really should look at the price. Sometimes the return on that education isn't there unless you're going to pursue something that really requires those, that brand and that, the connections or whatever it right. is, right? But certainly I would not encourage you, so again, like, there's a whole range of students. Yep. If you're a student who's just coming back because you know what you want to do, if you're if you're that student, then you do what that is, right? I, I know I want to be an engineer. Great. Then you just go be an engineer. Get those skills. You know, Boom. Go, the, go that route, all that kind of stuff. But if you're kind of, if you're me, I'll just assume that you're the, I don't know, I'm sure I'm, I, the people like me are we're good academic achievers, but maybe don't really know what we're looking for yeah. out of life. Yeah. Right? Um, core skills, not specific skills. Okay. Communications, writing. Yeah. Skills of expression, skills of analysis, skills, quantitative skills. Okay. Right? You know, um, but I, you know, I would also, and I think, colleges need to do a better job of this is the social emotional. So, you know, if you think of getting these three buckets, there's a technical component, there's a cognitive component, and there's a social emotional bucket. If you know what you want to do and feel like you're going to be safe in the technical world, you can just go and pursue technical skills. But if you're not in that bucket, because technical skills, those are what get replaced, right? It's the creativity that's embedded in cognitive skills and it's the social stuff you know, interesting, you know, we know from other research, um, now we're going to jump into my, my life as a social capital researcher, people who are, have the same academic propensity don't end up in the same spot, right? Right. Yeah. And if you say, well, what, what's the magic that these people over here that tend to succeed really high? Well, a lot of it tends to be they're really good at social stuff. Okay. They network better. They're, they're, more, they're friendlier. They're more assertive. They're whatever it is, right? They got their social stuff together. So if you marry those two things... That's when you're really lethal. When you yeah. can marry problem solving, grit, social, emotional stuff, all that kind of stuff, and you know, obviously give you a competent level of technical skills, that's the most lethal person in the labor lethal market. Lethal in the positive sense. In the positive sense, right? Is that, you know, look, I, I can go get whatever job I want because yeah. I'm bringing a lot to the table, right? And so yeah. if I'm a student, if I'm saying to somebody, look, what do you, should, you should get as much out of college as you can. Right. And, you know, a part of college, you know, the secret part of college, you know, the, we didn't think of college as classes. Right. Oh, but really it's, you're just developing still. Yeah. Right. We know your brain yeah. isn't even developed yet. Yeah. Right. We know that now. We know that your brain is not done developing. It's like age 26. And it's 25, 26 yeah, something or something like that. Right. So like part of this is just, you're just biding your time while your brain is developing. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's great. You get, it's an opportunity to just go explore and experiment. Right. Yeah. And so to me, that's the advice is experiment like crazy. Don't worry as much about this traditional grades and that kind of stuff. I, I was way too worried about that stuff. Like, obviously that was useful for me to get to good graduate school. There's a gatekeeper function to grades. There's a gatekeeper sure. function. So I don't want to say don't worry about grades, but there's ways around grades. Um, yes. if, uh, you know, and so the real value, what really should, you should be doing is experimenting a lot and learning a lot. You know what? And I use experiment intentionally because, well, of course, it's just an experiment. Yes. Right? It's, can I do these assignments well enough to satisfy this person who has been stamped with some higher level of achievement? Right? 
Um, and do I like this material? And if you don't, that's fine. Failed experiments are still okay. Yeah, it doesn't experiment. mean you're a bad student. That's right. You're bad you know, in you general. Just, the key is that you have to find. You have to be able to do good at something. If yes. you're just if you're constantly doing bad, well, then that's a signal that you're not good, right? But one of my friends from graduate school was not a serious student until she found the right professors, right? Mm-hmm. And eventually, she found the right professors, and they were like, "Wow, you're really good." And they basically wrote her letters of recommendation saying, don't look at her grades. Right. So, again, that matching game, right? that social function. Ignore her grades. Before. I'm telling you, this person is good and will succeed in your graduate school. Yes. Right? Uh, and so that kind of stuff is still available. And so, you know, I, I think if, again, I've rambled from your question, but if I'm advising students, take advantage of the opportunity. Pursue lots of different things. Interact with lots of people. Yes. Um and try and get, you know, develop not just the standard, oh, I'm good. I, I managed to check these boxes and get these technical skills, but really do work on, you know, and colleges need to do better. The colleges have no course in social emotional skills. No. Right? Some teachers try and embed it kind of secretly by making you do group work or something like that, <laughs> as if that's somehow going to develop them. And, you know, it's just accidental, right? We need more purposeful, like, oh, what does it mean to, to recognize your emotions and how does it, you know, how do you interact with somebody who's behaving in this way and all these kinds of things that I don't know anything about, but I know that other people know lots about people them. People know about them. And in terms of, you know, and just understanding that when you work in an organization, this is something I do know about, right? Uh, you know, I do consulting in this area of organizations, they, they also tend to ignore the role of their social network in their overall output or overall capacity you can't do that your social network is is at least as important as your technology um if not more important um in terms of you know well how does information flow do people have relationships that they're they're engaging in favor exchange do people know you know in fact i was just reading about this this morning right like our memories are imperfect and a lot of what we end up doing is we use our social network to store information just like we use our hard drive to store information right I know that Justin knows about running and I know that Justin knows about marketing. Sure. Um, and, you know, so if I have questions in those areas, well, great. I just know that Justin knows it. And ideally, we would be explicit about what you know and what I know and what we can then rely on. And that's where, you know, just having that awareness that your social network matters um, and how to build it and maintain it, um, I think are things that uh, I think we'll do more of in the future because social skills are becoming more important. Well, again, and if we have less, you know, if I have to spend less time doing content delivery piece, I got more time to think creatively about all the other pieces where we can do it better. That's right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's, that's, I'm an optimist. I'm optimistic. Actually. I think that, you know, along some margins, yeah, things will change a lot. If all I was going to hire Ed war was a certificate that proved I knew X, Y, and Z. Yeah, you're done. Great. I don't need to go to a course to do that if I'm just trying to demonstrate certain kinds of knowledge. But uh, to the extent, you know, I'm really trying to develop deeper skills. uh, I still think being in a concentrated environment where lots of people are doing it and then you're being guided by people who in the perfect world are also motivated to help you do it and skilled at doing it. I think that's, you know, that's a, that's a model that should survive into the future and provide lots of value. 
Yeah, you would think. I mean, I'm a uh, receptive and, uh, <laughs> and um, I don't know, what? favorable audience, oh, yes. obviously. <laughs> there will be more demand, and right. I will get to do more of what I want to do. Yeah. That sounds great. But yeah, I feel like, you know, we would be remiss, and this is a bit of a shift of gears, but I want to go back to that, that flag we planted earlier and just get into that interesting Pew result that showed that, you know, for pretty stable view of the value of higher or the good that higher education or good that colleges serve. I can't remember the exact yeah, word, something, the question. You know, but good for society. On or around 2015, precipitous drop amongst Republicans in the, in the usefulness of college, basically. Suddenly, a lot more Republicans thought that colleges were bad for the country or for the economy. And maybe... I don't know if you have any thoughts about why that might be or... Well, to me, this is really just a, an expression of partisanship, right? Okay. Like, you know, we've seen this in lots of survey questions, right? Is, you know, Putin is bad. Putin is, you know, in 2012, yeah. Mitt Romney, Putin is the worst thing in the world. Sure. 2016, Donald Trump, Putin's not so bad. Well, what happens to Republican views on Putin? They just swing wildly, mm-hmm. right? So to me, this is really just, you know... All of a sudden, college college a has for something else. college has become a proxy for liberal and you know this other group that we don't like in our stupid partisan wars. Okay. Um, uh, now, to the extent that that starts to matter in terms of policy, or people actually investing in education, whether it's the public investing in education or individuals investing in education, this is a problem. Yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, um, until we can we get to the point where college isn't actually generating returns. Um, you know, and from the research side, I think we have pretty good evidence that it generates solid returns on the private individual side, on the social side of you know having more educated people. Um, you know, in some sense, this has been the secret or part of the secret of of, um, of American economic success, right? We have the most envied university system in the world, mm-hmm. right? People from all over the world come here. And, you know, frequently they end up staying here. It's great. We just picked off your smartest people. Right, right. Right. And now they work here. Right. And they increase the size of our economy and create opportunities for all of us. Right. You know, I mean, economists, we are not zero sum when it comes to the economy. We tend to think that we do better when we all grow. Now, obviously, there's distributional things that I think feed into some of this. And, you know, how are the how is prosperity being shared? You know, from this growth and, you know, is concentration in the hands of too few and not being spread about. Those are issues, right? But those aren't issues that say, oh, yeah, we should just trash our, our, our system of education, right? You know, in some sense, we should continue to invest in them and we should try and solve these other problems. But, you know, hopefully this is just a momentary expression of partisanship. My guess is, again, at the individual level, Right. People still go, oh, wait a second. Yeah, I should go to that college thing. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. It seems um, like it might be just the way they're you know, But the, the challenge, of course, is if, if it starts to affect how either state or federal legislatures yeah. deal with that level of policy, um, you know, certainly you can you can weaken the education system. We're already seeing that, right? You know, we've seen a massive just, uh, reduction in the number of foreign applications uh, yeah. across the university system. State and federal funding for um, education and all these things. So, you know, there's certainly some areas of concern um, in terms of, you know, do we get the right investment? You know, and that, But what is the right mountain? All that kind of stuff is a hard question. I don't want yeah. to say that I know the answer to that. Right. I just know that on average, historically, it appears that investments in higher education pay off socially and at the individual level. 
but you know, we have to constantly debate what do we think the future is and what's the right level and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. uh, but certainly, uh, I also think that we shouldn't be trashing our education system. We should be making sure that it's serving the function that we need. Uh, and it, I, I still think we need both the research and the teaching. Mm-hmm. Well, Bryce, always awesome to uh, just dive into these topics with you. We could we could go on for hours, and we sometimes do, which is, <laughs> which is awesome. So I, I look forward to maybe enticing you to come back on the podcast again in the future. But as we close here, so you're in the middle of this Economic Outlook Tour. How can people learn more about you, find your work, the Bureau? The Bureau has a website, although I'm not sure there's much information on it. I can, I'm, a, I'm on Twitter, uh, Bryce A. Ward, at Bryce A. Ward. I usually tweet out my own stuff. I, you know, my consulting firm, ABMJ Consulting, we also have a website um, where I occasionally post things. And then, you know, if you're in Montana, we're in the news all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, just read your local paper, turn on the local news. You'll, you'll, you'll frequently, if we do something, you'll probably see it. Um, and, and that kind of leads me into the question I like to close the podcast with is, okay, so why is somebody like you? Why are you here in Missoula? <laughs> Oh, my story is, is a little simple in that I married somebody from Missoula uh, okay. who was quite adamant that we needed to live in Missoula. Big tailwind. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, we we lived in Oregon where, again, I'm from, uh, but not in the town that I'm from because I'm from a small town. And, you know, not, there wasn't, there's not a lot to do with the PhD in economics uh, in a small town. Um at least one I'm from. Uh, and so we were in Portland, which is not close to either of our houses. And so we had a fight for a long time about where we should live. Um, and then a job at the university opened uh, when I was going to be transitioning jobs anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll go see what this university thing is like and see if it's still something that I, I want to be in. And so here I am. Well, maybe that's a topic for our, our next conversation is how do we create more opportunities to get awesome people like you here in town. People who went to the Outlook last year know that I have thoughts on that. That was my my topic last year. Cool. Well, Bryce, thanks so much. Uh, get out there. Listen to Bryce on the, on the circuit. And uh, this guy is one amazing thinker. So try to, uh, to get in front of him in any way you can. Thanks for being right. here, Bryce. Appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. All right. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. First, rate us on iTunes. Ratings help others find the podcast. Second, write a review. The more reviews we get, and hopefully positive ones, the more we can grow the show. And third, just tell your friends about it. In addition, you can also support A New Angle financially. For information on sponsorship opportunities, please visit our website, www.business.umt.edu slash anewangle. There you will also find a link to donate to the pod. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this project happen. First, my colleagues here at the College of Business for supporting this endeavor. In particular, I'd like to thank Professor Josh Herbold for writing and recording music for the show. We also have music provided by Switchback Records, a student-run record label here at the college. And thanks to my producer, Stefan Borsum. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle on all your various social channels. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.